0: If you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 73, the text that we just heard sang sung for us. We praise our turning that God would speak and bless his word. Father, would you, uh, would you be gracious and merciful to us and uh, come alive to us through your word. Through your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Asaph wrote this: "Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death; their bodies are fat and sleek." They are not in trouble as others. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I had been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have been betrayed. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it just seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakens. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You uphold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me... It is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. And I tell you that I may tell of all your wonderful works. This is God's word. Steve Brown tells a story of the late R.C. Sproul. That one time they were in the hallways of their seminary after class reflecting on their lectures. Dr. Sproul just paused and looked at Dr. Brown and just said, are we sure? Are we sure what we're teaching? And Dr. Brown, he said, I ask it every week. See, whether or not we want to admit it and what this text brings alive to us is that doubt is a part of life. It's a part of life inside and outside the church. But the hard part about doubt is that there's really no good place to work through your doubts. I mean, outside the church, in the secular world, it's it's really difficult to work through your doubts. Because you're not allowed to doubt your doubts. I mean, everybody uh, scoffs at the idea of even asking uh, existential questions about your own skepticism. But sometimes it's even harder inside the church to work through your doubts. I remember a minister one time speaking, and my wife and I were sitting there, and he said, I've only doubted one time, and that was in 1974, but it wasn't about Jesus. And I thought, well, I'm never talking to him You see, it doesn't ever feel like there's a safe place, an honest place, to be able to work through what's going on. But this text and what the psalmist is working through is his doubts. And I think what he does is it gives us a way to work through our doubts. Because we've got to create places and create a space in the church that this can be worked through in a thoughtful, gospel-centered way. There was an article, People Magazine, two years ago, that just on the front cover had just pictures of children in high school and younger who had died from this heroin epidemic. And it just was, it was stunning, some of these pictures. And one of the mothers who was interviewed, she said, you know, none of this is going to go away until we stop looking at drug addiction as a character flaw. The same is true of Doubt. Our skepticism in society will only grow, and it will only grow inside and outside the church until we stop looking at it as a character flaw, as if there's something wrong with you as a person because you're not sure, because you don't know how to think and rest your heart and rest your soul and rest your hopes on this at all times, at all moments, in all places. And so I want to free you this morning and help you and empower you to both work through your doubts and help those around you work through your doubts through five things. If you want to work through your doubts, you've got to reflect on your reasons. You've got to see this as a gift. You have to grow your understanding of God. You cannot do this alone. And you have to rest in some unchanging truths. Okay? So first of all, you have to reflect on your reasons. You see, like, throughout our doubts, there are reasons why we doubt. Richard Dawkins, he says, that it's a, he argues and critiques Christianity that it's a virtue In Christianity, to not think. But the same could be true to skepticism. That if you don't have your reasons for your own skepticism, then you yourself would have to uphold that as a virtue to not think at all. But there are reasons why we doubt, and they're often more personal and more practical than we want to admit. Look what the psalmist says. In verse 2, he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Right here he's giving us sort of an illustration, a picture of what doubt is. He says doubt is is sort of like when you're walking somewhere and your brain loses disorientation with your feet and you don't know where you're standing. That often what it is is our feet, where we're standing in life, becomes out of touch with the way we think and what we believe to be real. He says, I don't know where to stand. Well, why? Look in verse 3. He says, Was it because of uh, all the arguments in science outside of me? Was it because of the other gods around me? He says, no, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See, here's the reason that the psalmist is admitting that he's doubting. He says, it's not because of intellectual objections. It's not because there's got to be more ways to God than this one. It's not because religion is a straitjacket. It's not because I can't trust the scriptures He says, I don't know if God is real, because when I look out in the world and I see everyone else's life, it's going significantly better than mine. And I am envious of that. He said, it is out of jealousy. It's out of frustration that I long for that. Can you admit that? Aldous Huxley, in his famous book, Ends and Means, describes his own skepticism this way. He says, see, I had motives for not wanting the world to work and have meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none. And I was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. Now, the philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem of pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to find no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in the way they find most advantageous to themselves. See, if you want to work through your doubts or you want your friends to work through your doubts, you've got to admit and help them admit that the reason that you don't want Christianity to be true is not because you can't figure this out intellectually or metaphysically. It's that we don't want it to be true because of what that will mean for my bank account, for my sexual practices, for my political reasons, for my ethical life. See, what the psalmist is admitting is that the reasons that I am skeptical, the reasons I'm doubting are practical reasons where I'm so sure life will flourish best if I can embrace this. And if we're honest, we're doing the same thing. Here's why, let's apply this for one second. Here's why you have to reflect on your reasons. Because if you're struggling with Christianity right now or you know someone who is, don't reject the faith for something the faith doesn't stand for. See, the people right now today, and I see this all the time on the college campus, claim, here's why I can't believe. Because of what I'm learning in my biology class. And what I always want to say back is, okay, well, I understand what you're talking about with your biology class and evolution and what you're learning. But does that mean that that man, Jesus, could not have walked out of that grave 2,000 years ago? Because what the faith stands for and what it says is that that man walked out of the grave to be Lord and Savior of the whole world, and that's where all this hand stands on. There's a difference between rejecting that and rejecting something the Bible never says is a crucial part of faith. If you want to work through your doubts, you have one, you have to reflect on your reasons. But two, you have to see this as a gift. Now, what do I mean by that? Look, the Bible doesn't teach us so much exclusively what to believe it also teaches us how to believe. Look what the psalmist says. He says in the first couple of verses, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And then he goes on to talk about all of the ways that he's frustrated with the discouraging things he sees in the world. He says their lives are better than me. They're all thriving without God. And then in verse 15, he says, for I for I said, I will speak thus. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He says, if I feel like my faith is in vain, none of this is going to work out. But then at the end of the text, we see some of the most profound claims of God in all of scripture. Verse 25, for whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. He's saying, my heart longs for you. God above all other things of the world. You alone am I going to put my hope. You alone am I going to cling to. And do you know how he got from there to there? It was through his doubt. See, some of us think that if doubt ever comes upon us or comes upon someone around us, it's the worst thing that can happen to your faith. But sometimes one of the best things that can happen to your faith is a little skepticism. Because what it does is it doesn't just... Uh, drive you away from God, sometimes it drives you deeper into the heart of God. Sometimes it makes you ask questions that only God himself can answer. See, often skepticism can be the most empowering, helpful thing that we could have in our life. I'll give you, you sort of sit there and say, how in the world is that? I'll give you an example. One of the most dangerous, corrupting things that's happened to American culture are Ponzi schemes. And how, how does that work? How's a Ponzi scheme work? Well, somebody comes and tells you something that is unbelievable, that can't go wrong, that's the most attractive thing you've ever heard, and you immediately buy into it. And it begins to take, suck you in, and then suck your friends in, and suck your life away, and ruin you, and leave you financially gone the rest of your life. And you know what would have saved you in that moment? Was skepticism, was asking questions, was looking. Was, was, was going deeper with the research, was finding it out. See, sometimes the greatest gift we can have is a little bit of doubt because it helps us not just know that God exists, but to know who he is and how he comes to us and where he is in the midst of our doubts. Descartes once said, defeat skepticism by being skeptical, skeptical of everything. Let me apply that for you. If you've got somebody... Who's going through doubts, maybe your spouse, maybe your friend, maybe one of your children, don't squash them out. Don't guilt them. Don't shame them. Don't make them think God is angry with them. You remember Thomas in John 20 who says, I will not believe until I see his hands. And how does Jesus see, treat him? He doesn't come and say, Are you ready to believe? What are your questions? Ask them now. He just holds out his hands and says, touch me. Feel me. Peace be with you. Listen, those who are asking questions, who want to know, let them ask questions. Because what is plaguing the college campus, and I think what plagues most secularism often for those who are de-churched in our culture, are people who are never allowed to ask never allowed to wonder and never allowed to question in a place that where there were gracious answers were provided and so they just thought there were no there were no answers for their questions see what we need in the church and what we need in the pca today our places high school kids and growing kids and our friends can ask questions and they're not, we're not they're not met with how dare you question they're met with see his hands see his side and sometimes people who work through that come out with the greatest professions of faith there are. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is no one on earth beside you. See, sometimes skepticism and doubt can be a gift. But thirdly, if you want to work through your doubts, you have to grow your understanding of God. Because doubts come often from a, from a perspective of a God who doesn't make sense to us. That is, as we're living life, the paradigm that we have of God isn't adding up and isn't connecting with what's going on in our life. Look how the psalmist works through this. He says in verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, those to those who are pure in heart. Saying, here's his paradigm of God. God will reward and be kind and make your life okay if you yourself are pursuing after him. But then he goes through life and he goes through in verse 3 forward. It says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw their prosperity of the wicked. And then in verse 4, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Skip down to verse 6. Their pride is their necklace. Verse 7, their eyes swell through fatness. 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftiness is their oppression. Yet everything in verse 12 is at ease. And they're increasing in riches. And he says, for I have kept my heart clean in vain. See, here's Asaph's perspective and in, in paradigm of God. He's saying, "He th- I, if, if I honor you, God, you will honor my life. But this makes no sense with what's going on around me because all these people around me, they hate you. They will not honor you and their life is better than mine. This doesn't make sense. And so for many of us, often what, where doubt creeps in, is suffering comes. Our life doesn't work out, our marriage doesn't work out the way that we wanted. Or our job didn't, didn't cultivate the way that we'd hoped it would cultivate. And we wonder if God is good. We wonder where he is on this. And sometimes we even look at the church and think the church lied to me about who God was. And I want to tell you the church, did, it didn't, the church didn't lie to you. Often, what the problem is for us, and the reason we can't work through those parts of life with our doubts, is we have an immature view of God that was only developed at a child or a young age. That's got to be that's got to grow. Let me explain. Um, you know, in our children's Sunday school classes, we're not going to go to them uh, when they're sitting there with a toy and uh, and yank it out of their hand and say, "Listen." God one day will do this with your idols, but I promise you it's out of love. It it makes no sense. No, at young ages, what we want them to understand is God loves you, God's arms are open, God forgives you, and God cares for you, and God is for you. But that theology alone is not enough to, to walk through life. Think about it this way. If you ask your, let me ask you this question. Where do babies come from? And how do you answer that? See, it depends on who you're talking to. See, if you talk, you're talking to a Ph.D. biology class, there's a very molecular, biological, scientific answer to that. If you're talking uh, to a young couple in premarital counseling, there's a more intimate answer to that. If you're talking to a young teenager, it's a more awkward answer for that. But if you're talking to a little child... The answer to that is mommy's tummy. See, here's the problem with most of us in the church. We're trying to process suffering and the hard things of life with a mommy's tummy theology. And what the church didn't lie to you about God is that you never grew your understanding of God and who he was and who he was in his character and how he works with you and how he works in the church and how he works in the world to a degree that would enable you to work through and process life. See, if we're going to follow God and trust him with our lives and trust him with what he's going to do in the world, we've got to let him be God. And that means there are things that God is going to do in your life and do around you that have to make sense at times only to him and will not make sense to you Maybe in the present moment, maybe not even in this life altogether, but trust him that he himself will be good. And you know what? You can, because look what happens to the psalmist in this text in verse 21. He says, when my soul was embrittered though, when I was pricked in the heart, when I learned how immature, how, how my, I had a mummy's tummy view of you, God, says, I was brutish and I was ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. But nevertheless, when I thought this about you, when I thought you were not good, when I thought you were not a God who could work through this pain and difficulty in my life, you hold me at my right hand. You understand that when you go through moments in life where you don't know if God is good, you don't know if this is a God who is still caring and involved and working in your life and you doubt him and you're far from him and you don't know how to think about him, he is a God that you can be sure will still hold you by your right hand. You know why? Because on the cross, he let go of Jesus's. Because on the cross, Jesus lost the right hand of the father. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that means what the cross is, is God cares way more about your story and where your story is going and being present and working with you through all the suffering, through all the difficult, through all the things that don't make sense to us in this world where we wonder where he is, the cross guarantees you that he is with you no matter what. And what you need to work through your doubts in life is a theology and a perspective of God through the cross that promises you that no matter what you're going through, he is with you and beside you and for you through all of that, maybe in a way that you don't understand and maybe in a way that will never make sense to us until glory. Kierkegaard, he said, we only understand life when we look back. And it may be glorious when we look back on some of the moments in life where we thought he was so far, but he was with us the whole time. Now, if you're struggling with doubt, sometimes what that feels like is I'm asking you into blind faith just to sort of close your eyes and believe that God is good and to believe who the Bible says he is. Isn't that just blind faith? Well, let me ask you this. Well, how much faith does it take to not believe in God and still think life is going to turn out okay and still think everybody's going to love you in the end? I mean, what, what, what hope and what assurance are you, can you rest on in order for that to happen? See, what we need in life is we need a God who knows us no matter if it's day or night. If it's rain or sun. If we believe or we're skeptical and know he is with us. And wouldn't you rather look back on your life on the things that you're not sure about right now, and know that all the things where he felt far away, you find out he was using this to make me into somebody more beautiful than I could ever know, that I ever drew it for myself, to make me into a relationship that I never would have chosen, that I never would have gone if he had not let that happen in my life and to know he was so good for letting something happen that I never would have chosen to give me something I never would have pursued. Don't you want a God in a life like that? See, sometimes what we need is our doubts and a God who will speak to us and we know will be with us in our doubts. You have to grow your understanding of God. If you want to work through your doubts, you reflect on your reasons. You see it as a gift. You grow your understanding of God. But fourthly, You don't stay alone. Verse 1 through 16, he's oppressed. He's frustrated. He doesn't know how to make sense of it. And then in verse 17, he says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean he walked into a beautiful building like this and got alone and did one-on-one communion with God. It doesn't mean he saw like the stained glass windows and life has changed. What it means is he walked into the church. He walked into community. He walked into people. So you cannot ever work through all these questions and these problems alone. The author of Hebrews has a, has a text in chapter 3 where he says, See to it that you're not given over to sin's deceitfulness. Now, there's a lot of things he could say there that are corrosive and problematic with sin. He could say, you know, be careful of sin's uh, corruption. Uh, be careful of sin's guilt. But he says, be careful of sin's deceitfulness. Uh, that is taking over your life when you have no idea it's taking over your life. Okay, well, how do we do that? He says, well, exhort one another daily as long as it's called the day. The NIV says, encourage one another daily. And that word encourage, what it is, is in the Greek, it's the word paraclete, which is the same word that Jesus uses in John 14 when he says, I'm going to leave you, but have no fear. I'm going to leave you my comforter. I'm going to leave you my paraclete, my Holy Spirit. What the author of Hebrews says is, you know how you stay out of deceit? You have somebody in your life who speaks the truth to you, who talks to you, who encourages you, who is the Holy Spirit for you, who reminds you of the truth, who treats you with grace, who speaks to you when you need truth, who speaks to you this way, we need grace. Listen, if, if doubts themselves are not intellectually arrived upon, then we can't get out of them intellectually ourselves. We have to get out of them with people. Don't do it alone. So how do you work through your doubts? You reflect on your reasons. You see it as a gift. You grow your understanding of God. Fourthly, you don't do it alone. But fifth and lastly, you rest in unchanging truths. Here's Here's the thing to leave with. See, as you work through this process, there's things you have to hold on in your heart and sing and believe and stamp on your desk And look in verse 26, because he gives us a great gift here. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail. In the midst of doubt, my heart may let me down. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He says, even when my heart fails, God is greater than my heart. He says, you are the strength of my heart. That word strength is in the Hebrew, the word sir, often translated Rock. And there's no time in the Old Testament where that word, sir, is translated into mean pebble or a small, teeny little thing. It's often meant to be a boulder, something that held something up, something that that blocks something, something that sustains something. And the idea is that in life, when you get slippery, when it doesn't work, when it doesn't add up, you need something more sure outside of yourself than your feelings and your own perspective in your life. You need something to stand on. You need something more sure than your emotions. In uh, Monsanto, Portugal, there's a town in the valley outside of Lisbon. It's a little town that was built uh, around boulders. That when they went to go build the town, the boulders built into the side of the mountain were so big, so monumentous, They couldn't even get them out of the side of the mountain and pull them out of the city. So what they did as you go there is that people's houses and uh, buildings throughout the town are built around these boulders. So you'll walk in somebody's house, and a a wall in the house is nothing but a, a huge boulder. Or somebody's floor to their house is nothing but a huge boulder. Or there's some places, I wouldn't want to live in this one, the roof is just a huge boulder. And what happens is they had to build everything in that house around the boulder. They designed the color. They designed the landscape. They designed uh, the layout of the house around these boulders. And the picture is this. They couldn't. What they couldn't do with these boulders is they weren't small enough that they could fit the boulders around their house. They had to fit their house around the boulders. See, you can do one of two things in life, especially with doubt. You can either try to create a God... It fits into the way you want life to be. It's always changing. It's never dependable. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. And try to create a God who works for that, who for the same way will be here today, gone tomorrow, always changing. Or you can build your life around a rock. A God who will never change. Who will never alter his character. Who will never alter his favor towards you in Christ. will never move away from you and build your life around that more sure than your emotions and your feelings. And if you want to walk through doubts in life, you rest in that. But you don't just rest in him as a rock, you say this that he is my portion forever. This is an amazing statement from Asaph because Asaph is a Levite. If you don't know about the Levites, when the 12 tribes of Israel were brought into the promised land, each of them was given a portion. That you, Benjamin, will have this corner. You, Judah, will have this corner. You will have this corner. But the Levites, they were told that God Himself will be your portion. So, what He's, what he's saying when He says this is He's not just sort of claiming an intellectual praise lyric, He's having to look out at both the secular world and those outside the church and those inside the people of faith, and realize everybody's got a better life than me. Everyone is promised more in this world right here and now than me. he's saying, the only way I'm gonna work through this is to believe and grab a hold of God himself and say, you are more beautiful than the allotment I've been given. I'll tell you, there's no culture in the history of the world with our envy factories of Instagram and Facebook, that's tempted every day to feel like you're missing out on the beauties of this world. I mean, it just feels like every day somebody's got a better life than me. Let me ask you a question. In the midst of your doubts and and frustrations and anxiety in life, what drives you? What really drives you in life? Because for the most part, the 21st century American is driven by the fear that every day I'm not finding out what is the thing that's going to make me the most happy and give me the fullest life here and now in this moment. And we have hundreds and hundreds of examples of people who've gotten close to that and tasted it and said, there's nothing at the top of the mountain. But those of us still in the valley still think, I, I, I want to try it myself. But if you want to work through the envy doubts, because if we're honest, those are the ones, those are the ones that really keep us from intimacy with God. This morning, you've got to grab onto this idea that God is more beautiful than anything you grab hold of this world. But what do you want? You want friendship? I mean, Jesus' friendship, it, it is more intimate, it is richer than any, any friendship here. You want a loving, committed relationship. No one will stay with you more than Jesus. You want, you want character. You want knowledge. You want a reputation. No one will think about you. No one will uphold you. No one will keep you in the right standing the way God himself in Christ will. Look, no one will treat you and no one will give you. What the promise of heaven is, is everything you've longed for, in this world finally met in the fullness and the hope of the presence of God. There's a hymn by a woman named Anne Cousin. She said this, The bride eyes, not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Listen, here, here's what she's saying in this hymn. She says, Look, there's going to be a day, if you're a Christian, when you will finally be in glory in the presence of God. And you will be given wedding garments. And they will be so magnificent that you will not be able to take your eyes off it. I mean, it all of us have had this day where it's like just the clothes fit right, the hair is working. And we just, it's just nice to look in the mirror a lot and just glance and just like today it works. And she says, that day you'll be a hundred times more beautiful. You will be so perfect. If you saw yourself today, you'd be almost probably tempted to lay down in worship and you swear you'll, you'd be content. But she says, but then Jesus will show up and he will be so beautiful. And he will be so majestic and he will be so inviting that those wedding garments that you're wearing, you won't even notice them. You won't even look. Because he will hold your gaze. What in this world can hold your gaze for 30 minutes? Because what she says in that hymn and what Psalm 73 says he won't be your portion today or tomorrow, forever. That means when you stare at him and you see him, it will captivate you in a way nothing has ever captivated you for more than 10 seconds in this world. But every moment you look at him will be better than the one before. And it will never, ever, ever end. And listen, if you doubt right now that that is true, do you know what his beauty will say to you? My tender mercies, are open and touch my hands and see my side and peace be with you. Listen, rest in that, that all the troubles and all the things that don't make sense in life, that you may come to a more profound way of knowing him. That even in the hard things of life, you can say, you are my rock and my portion forever. I may that be true for you. Let me pray for us. Lord, in heaven, um, Lord, we pray and we sing to a God who we've never physically seen. But, Lord, when when we're together as a church, sometimes our love, sometimes our praises together manifest your love and presence in beautiful ways we don't taste in this world. So, Lord, until you return and then face to face, Lord, would your spirit... Grab our hearts and help us when we leave to live like you are the rock. To look out in the world and say, you are our portion. Not just this morning, not just this afternoon, but for forever. Oh, Lord, help us in Jesus to grab that. I pray for anybody, Lord, whose heart is fleeting, that you would enable them to grab and you would know how tender and kind you are in their skepticism. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.